observing. So the writer is, is encouraging us that let's, we need to pay more closely attention to this Jesus guy. Who is this guy? And so he says, when we look closely at Jesus, what do we see? We see, first of all, that he's referred to as the apostle of our confession. Now, that word apostle is kind of a, it's a, become kind of an, a religious word for us today. But back in the first century, the word apostle was a, was a common word that was basically used uh, to, to refer to a messenger, someone that's sent forth. Uh, they didn't have the Internet back in the first century. They didn't have newspapers. They didn't have a lot of these TV, radio, that kind of thing. And so if there was news to be sent out, they would send a messenger out to proclaim, hey, we got a new king, or we won this battle. Right? That was the, that was the job of an apostle. So think about Jesus as being God's messenger of the good news. Right? The other thing that we see when we look closely at Jesus is he's the high priest of our confession. Now, he's talking to Jewish Christians here, so we'll focus in on that. But the idea of a priest is, was commonplace. Every, you know, uh, Greek god had a, had a temple, had priests. But for the Jews, the priest, the priest function, and the priest function in any, any religion, is the worshiper comes to the temple or comes to the place of worship, brings their offering, gives it to the priest, and the priest actually offers it to God. The priest is an intermediator. Uh, uh, he, he, he's a go-between. Now, this passage doesn't say that Jesus was just a priest. He's the high priest. Okay? The function of the high priest in the Jewish priesthood was that the high priest made sacrifices for the whole nation, not just the individual worshiper. They would, he would make sacrifice for the whole people. So Jesus then is our high priest today. So at this point, the writer is kind of makes this transition. He says, because Jesus is all these things, he's, he's, he's this great person we need to pay attention to. But remember, the, the, the book of Hebrews is being written to people who are kind of waffling in their faith a little bit because of the persecutions and the hard times that's going on. And they're being tempted to go back into Judaism. They're being tempted to go back to Moses. And so Jesus, so the writer says, so we need to take a look at Jesus in comparison to Moses. He's greater than Moses. And in order to make that transition, that comparison, he uses a simple metaphor of a house. By the way, before, just as a side note, you'll, you'll see that uh, Moses was not the high priest in the old, his brother Aaron was the high priest. It's just interesting thing. <laughs> but he, but uh, the writer refers to a passage in, in Numbers chapter 12 to uh, to talk about this. I think I have that. Is it on the next slide? Can you go to the next slide? Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 6. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, 
I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This passage gives us a little glimpse into why Moses had the esteem in the eyes of a, of a Jew that he did. All the other people, all the prophets and everything that, Jesus, that God spoke to, says here that God spoke through visions and dreams. But it was Moses that he spoke face to face, mouth to mouth. He, among all of the people in, in the Old Testament, it was only Moses that was able to talk to, to God face to face. And he uses this image, he says, he was faithful in all my house. Now I think he uses, he uses the, the idea of a house here in two different contexts, in two different uh, references. First of all, we can talk about a house as the physical building of a house. And if you think of Moses and the law as the house, he didn't actually create the law. God created the law and gave it. So the point that the writer here is saying, you know, the builder and the designer and builder of a house is more glorious than the house itself. So Jesus created, was with God, created the law. He's more glorious than Moses in that, in that sense. The other sense that he uses here in this passage is we can talk about the house in terms of a family. You know, we particularly talk in t that way in terms of royalty, royal families, and we talk about the house of the Tudors, the house of the Hanovers or whatever. You know, we talk about families, the house. And he uses this too, in this sense too, and he says, Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus was the son. Now, it's kind of interesting, I think, that we think about this you know, Moses was a figure that was held in such high esteem in his time that the, I think the writer had to be very careful that he doesn't say anything denigrating or disparaging to Moses himself. Moses was a great man. And he says, Moses was a faithful servant. You know, we can talk about Jesus being greater than Moses without tearing Moses down. Moses was a great guy. Jesus was just greater. So now this is all really interesting things, I think, from a theological, spiritual point of view. But what's that got to do with us today? None of us, I don't think in here, I'm looking around, none of us are Jews. Okay, so, so why is this important to us to think of Jesus as greater than Moses? Well, actually what I want to do is, is focus in on Jesus as greater than the greatest. And what's on the, this, this is a, it's not working like on here like it did on my computer at home. So what's on the next slide? There it is. Okay. So, okay, so the last word I want us to think about is allegiance. Who do we give our allegiance to? And the question in the minds of the first century uh, Jews that this book was written to is that are you going to give your allegiance to Jesus 
or are you going to give your allegiance to Moses? And so for us today, what are some other things that can vie for our allegiance besides Jesus? So I'm thinking that might be a good question for some of our small groups to talk about in your small group discussions this week. Or what are some other things that can vie for our allegiance and draw us away from our allegiance to Jesus? Now I want to focus in, this is, I want to be very clear, this is my opinion today right now. I think there's several things that could fall in there, and you can talk about that. But I think to me, the one that I've been really thinking about for quite a bit well, as I'm pre- preparing this message was science. I think to the, our culture has become so secularized. You know, that, that I, could, I think you could make an argument that today's uh, spiritual force is science in our culture. You know, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to make a point about something, put somebody in a white lab coat, you know, and and whatever they say is gospel, right? We have to we have to really pay attention to the scientists. Now, just like we don't want to disparage Moses, I don't think we want to disparage science either. Science has given us a lot of good stuff. You know, this technology that we're using this morning, this is all coming from science. A lot of the thing, you know, science is good. But does it deserve our allegiance over Jesus? You know, I have to think about what, you know, I've got uh, five little grandchildren. And I, have, I, think, I think a lot about what's the world going to be like in 20 years when they're young adults. What's the world going to be like? And where, where are their allegiance what are things are going to be vying for their allegiance over Jesus? This is something I think that we really need to be conscious and cognizant of as as we go through, even for ourselves. You know, as times get tough, and th- man, has, has there been in my lifetime has there been a, a year worse than 2020? You know, we got viruses, we got social unrest, we got all this stuff going on. We kids can't go to school. All these things happening. So where does Jesus fit into all this? And how does he impact our life? What I want to do, go to the next slide, is move on in our bow tie. And I want to start talk about the knot. Okay, the second word, the knot, is warning. You know, I think we're going to find throughout the whole book there's going to be the, uh, sections where Jesus is greater than this or Jesus is greater than that or Jesus... And in each one of these sections, we're going to find that there's a warning involved. Because Jesus is this, be, you know, you need to pay attention to this. And in this sect, what's the warning for us here? The first word again, and this is, uh, I guess it depends on which version you there's a therefore also. <laughs> What's the warning? Hardness of heart is the key phrase through this whole passage. You know, and, and being being hard-hearted, this is that's that is a a metaphor. We know our hearts aren't literally hard, but. Uh, 
It's a metaphor. And it's a metaphor that's used throughout the whole scriptures. You know, talking about the people whose, whose hearts became hard. Uh, Ezekiel prophesied that, you know, he, that uh, the covenant's going to take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. And to make his point here, uh, the writer quotes from a passage in Psalms, Psalms 95. And he, quote, he actually quotes it. So verses uh, 7, 8, down through 11, that's a quote from Psalm 95. And I wanted to draw, draw your attention to two key ideas that I think there. That explains, you know, if we were wanting to talk about what, what is this constitutes a hard heart, Let's think we, if you had this spiritual dictionary and there's an entry for hard heart, you know, I think what this passage is bringing out, that this is, this is be like the uh, personification of hard heartedness. And what he does here is he points to um, two different, two different, uh, uh, I'm not getting off here, am I? He's Yeah, 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 verse verse 8. As you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. He's referring here to uh two separate incidents that happened uh, when the children of Israel were making their way from Egypt to the Promised Land, and what's interesting is you get into these, into those stories. One was in Exodus chapter 17, and one is in Numbers chapter 20. These incidents are so similar that you're tempted to think that they're the same thing, just two different, two different descriptions. But if you really look closely into the, into the into the text, you'll see that. They happened in two separate times and two separate locations, so they have to be two separate events. But this was a, the, the event where, you know, the, the, the children of Israel are, are wandering through the desert, and they come to a place where they're going to camp, and they pick this place to camp, and there's no water source, okay? And so the people say, Moses, what, what, what are you doing here? We should have stayed in it. We should have stayed in Egypt. At least we had water there. And God went, God told in the first instance, God told Moses to take your rod and go and strike the rock, and water comes out, you know, when people had water, right? Then I don't know how many, I haven't really studied out to see how many years later, but it's quite a few years later. They're in a similar situation, in a, sim- in a different location, but similarly, they camp in a place where there's no water. This time, the people there are probably the children the, the, you know, the sons and daughters of the people who made the first mistake. But what do they do? You know, there's no water. They start grumbling, where's the water, Moses? And God tells him this time, go speak to the rock. And what did Moses do? He struck the rock, right? Now, I don't know if this has any. This is kind of an interesting side point. You can go look at it yourself. Uh, there's a passage in, where is it? It's in uh, first, first Corinthians, I think. Yeah, First Corinthians chapter ten. 
Paul, Paul says, hey, the people back there, they all were baptized with the same baptism. They all drank from the same rock. And the rock was Jesus. Paul said in Corinthians, that rock was Jesus. Figuratively obvious. And so think about Moses striking. He was told to strike the rock the first time, but speak to the Anyway, that's the whole thing. But that's an interesting sidelight. But the point here was, the two things, the key, key phrases in, in our passage is, God says, they saw my works for 40 years. They saw what I did, and they still didn't trust me. And they have not known my ways. To me, that's the definition of hard hearts. We see God's works all around us, but they mean nothing to us. They don't call us to faith in in God and Jesus. So how does this work today? You know, back in, in that time, they didn't have the Bible. They were in the process of writing the Torah. They didn't have scriptures. God said, hey, you see my works. You've seen my works for 40 years. What about us today? When you look up in the night sky, do you see science or do you see God? Do you see Big Bang or do you see creation? You know, I think what's what's really important for us as, as, as a body is that we need to have our faith stories. We need to have our stories that we're telling our kids about the th- good things that God does and the, the good things that God has done in our lives. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 6 Moses tells the people there to, you know, you need to talk about these things as you're walking along this road and as you're getting up in the morning, as you're going to sleep at night. We need to be talking about faith, our faith stories with our children. Because we don't want, and even amongst ourselves, we don't need ourselves to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, let's go to the, let's finish off our bow tie here. Our third section is, in the third word is promise. You know, when there's a warning in the scriptures, there's almost always a promise that goes along with it. And the key word here that I want to start with, let's go to the next, for, for promise is the word rest. starts off this section by talking says while the promise of entering his rest still stands now he he started talking about the rest in the previous section too but I wanted this is where I wanted to focus on it the rest he uses the idea of rest in three different contexts here three different references I mean this is a metaphor also right and so the first thing the first thing he says is that um God rested 
on the seventh day. Right? This is this is a reference back most a lot of people believe this is a reference back to a teaching that the rabbis had. If you go back to Genesis chapter one in creation, the six days of creation, each day is is delineated by in the, there was an evening and a morning a day. Day one, morning, evening, day two, morning, evening, do, 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 through the six days. Then you go to chapter two, and it just says that on the seventh day God rested. So the, the rabbis had this teaching, this idea that the rest, God is resting eternally, that his rest goes on, it's not delineated by a day. Okay? And so I think the, the author here is using that reference to talk about that God's rest is still out there. He's still inviting us to his rest. The second thing he talks about, he says that if Joseph, if, if uh, Joshua had given them rest, he's, that's a clear reference back to uh, the children of Israel in the desert. And when they crossed over into the promised land, uh, that, that Psalm 95 passage, that was written by David. That was the time of David. And he said, which is quite a bit later, he said they never entered God's rest because of their disbelief. And he goes on then to say the third thing, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, which is us. Now I think we can, we can say, you know, that that's a, that's a reference to God's rest in the, uh, uh, I'm blank on the, the Jews broke down time into the, the current age and the age to come. That's the word, right? The age to come. And so the, the God's rest will ultimately come in the age to come. But what have we been studying in our, in our classes a lot? That when Jesus came, the age to come has, has, has come into our present age, has broken into our present age. And so in some sense, there is a, there is a, a rest that God is calling us to even in our present age, even in the midst of, of viruses and and all this stuff that's going on, we can find rest. Where do we find it? I want us to, first of all, let's look in Philippians chapter 4. I think I, yeah, Philippians chapter 4, verse starting in verse 6. Paul's writing here, and he says, Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about viruses. Don't be anxious about the unrest in your world. Don't be anxious about furloughs and all the different stuff that's going on in our lives. Don't be anxious about that. Easy for you to say, Paul, right? How does that work? How does that work? He says, he goes on to say, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the rest that he's talking about. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what we need right now? Is the peace of God that transcends all understanding. 
and it comes through prayer and thanksgiving. You know, I think most of us pray a lot about the hard times that come into our life. How many of you pray with thanksgiving? Think about it. How grumpy can you be if you're being thankful? You know, later on in the book of, of uh, well, actually later on that in that chapter in Philippians 4, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. He said, I've been in plenty. I've been in situations where I've been in want. I've learned the secret. Would you like to know what the secret is? <laughs> Paul, tell us the secret. And he, all he says is, I could do all things through him who strengthens me, right? Okay. Tell me more. Tell me more. What's the next slide? Is it? Okay, go to the next one. I've, should have, keep going, because I want to get to the picture. Get to the picture. There we go. Lana sent me this. You're afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control. But you never had control. All you have is anxiety. That strike home. You know, we're talking, you know, allegiance, surrender, kind of the same kind of a thing. We're talking about where do we put our trust? And in the midst of all the stuff, you know, we hang on. I heard this great, this great illustration. I think it was Max Lucado. How many of you guys take your car to the the, the mechanic shop? Car's car problem. You, you you drive your car to the mechanic shop and you take your sleeping bag with you, <laughs> and you you drop the car off to the mechanic and you tell him, Hey, I'm just going to lay out here. I'm going to stay here while you're working in case you need any advice from me on how to fix this thing. I'm here if you need me. You guys, is that is that what we do? No, we typically, with me, I'll take my car, I'll drop it off, and then I leave. Now, at that point, I have a choice. I can drop it off and leave it to the mechanic and wait for him to call me and tell me what's wrong, and I go about my business. Or I can go home and wring my hands about what could possibly be found in that car, how much is it going to cost, am I going to get a loan, how am I going to finance this, and just worry about it. Is that what we do? You know, there are things that happen in our life that we need to be anxious about. But do we need to go home and wring our hands and worry about it all the time? Or can we give it to the mechanic and let him fix it? And we go about our business. And I know I'm saying that that's a lot easier to say than it is to do. We are, our society, our culture is in a tidal wave of anxiety right now. Just last week, I had three new clients come to my office, every one of them struggling to deal with their anxiety, the stress in their life. You know, the, the thoughts that they just run in their head that they can't get rid of. You know, the tension, headaches, and, and the irritability that they feel, and all this stuff. You know how you get when you get stressed? 
it's rampant because of all the stuff that's going on in our society. I think we, as children of God, we need to find that peace for ourselves and then be able to show other folks. You know, if we go through on, down through that passage back in Hebrews, there's another word that's, that's important there. It talks about today, as long as it's called today. This isn't something that need, we need to put off till tomorrow. We need to think about it right now. This stuff is going on right now, and we can't afford to put this off, just like the people back there couldn't afford to put off and let our hearts get hard. And the other thing that really caught my attention as we went as I went through this passage, the very the very last couple of a couple of verses are verses that I think are probably familiar to all of us. All of us who are disciples have we've gone through the studies. The very one of the very first studies you went through was the word study. You can probably quote this verse, right? For the word of God is what living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, right? Penetrating to the soul, the body of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Remember that verse? Now think about that. That verse is in this context. Have you ever thought about that? I know I had to, I had to really think about that. I quote that verse all the time. We read that verse all the time, but it's in this context of hard-heartedness and, dis- and disbelief. And the verse right before that, say, or the, the phrase right before that says, let us therefore, because of all this hardness of heart, let us strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall to the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. God's word can help us. How many of us, when we're struggling with some kind of anxiety, do we go to the scriptures to try to find answers? And one thing I think we, that, that I want to draw out here as we close, it talks about the word of God here. We have a tendency in our world today to think about the word, word of God. What do you think about? The Bible. The Bible, and it is. This is the Word of God. But in the first century, they didn't have one of these. Right? And so when they talked about the Word of God, the Word of God was the words of God, whether who who's speaking it or who's writing it or whatever, it's from God, it's God's Word. Well, you see this in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 13, Paul writes, he says, We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as, the, as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is, indeed, which is indeed at work in you who believe. You know, when we get together in our, in our discipling relationships and we use God's word to help us deal with some of these issues... That's God's word being active. That's God's word being living and active in our life. You know, we just want to finish this huge series of our one another relationships. And how many of those one another things, passages were encourage one another, spur one another on, confess your sins one to another. The things that we do together in our relationships, do you, think, do you ever think of that in the context of us? That's God's word 
power of God's living and active word working in our life. How many of us do not take advantage of that? How many of us do not, have not invited people into our life to share God's word with us? When you read the Bible, do you just read it or you read it to try to figure out some way to apply it to your life? When you get together, a lot of us do get together with, with other Christians, but do we talk about the things that are bothering them? Do I bring up the things that I'm stressed about? Do I seek to have some input and counsel from somebody else? Guys, if we want to find the peace that passes understanding in this chaotic world, we have got to tap into the power of God's word, not only in the Bible, but in our relationships that we talk with one another. The, the transformational power of one another relationships. Well, there's so much that we could, could have gotten into. There's 50 sermons you could preach out of this passage of Scripture. Hopefully what we talked about today is, is beneficial to you as it's been to me to, as, we, as I've studied it out and thought about it. But let's, let's latch on to the transformational power of God's Word. Amen.